Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right David? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is... Move! Get out of there! George, move! Dad! Move, Dad! Move, Dad! Get out! Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm joined by my co-host... Patrick. Hey, Jamie. And, hey, how you doing? I'm great. I'm excited to get back to the series again. I'm excited to look with new eyes at Bullshit. this movie from a different angle. <laughs> and uh, and I have to say, the angles that we're approaching it through tonight are angles that I really enjoy talking about and discussing. Yeah, me too. And I'm excited to learn from you guys a little bit of your perspectives on it as well. And tonight, we have a very special guest... Indeed, whom uh, you've heard us talking with many times if you listen to our other show that Jamie and I do together. Uh, this is Dan Ferlito, our co-host from Shoulder of Orion. And uh, welcome, Dan. Thanks, guys. Hey, everyone. Yeah, I've been looking forward to uh, talking about Prometheus, so I'm happy to be here and digging into these scripts and hanging out on the PO side of things. So that's what we're here to do today, is or tonight, wherever you are, is discuss a couple of scripts. Um, the original John Spate script, which went through two versions. I think it was Alien Zero One, and then it was Alien Engineers. So we're discussing the Alien Engineer script, and then Lindelof's rewrite, which was called Paradise Lost, which then was eventually titled Prometheus. And I don't know, there's a lot to, to dig into in terms of what these scripts are. I mean, for me, the reality is both scripts seemed very similar in terms of architecture and what's happening and the order of events. What's different is the way some, like the, the essentially the chest burster scene that happens that Lindelof eventually got rid of, stuff like that, like the little changes here and there, some changes of names, other things, um, that, and the removal of things essentially to make it less like Alien and more like, and more its own thing. Um, so, but before we get into that, this is something we do with all of our guests on per Perfect Organism is ask how you got into Alien, Dan. What was your first film and experience and memories? Um, Alien, like the original, or you mean the world in general? Everything, anything, yeah. Yeah, well, you guys, you guys love asking this question, and my memory is always so terrible of my like very first times. So I just remember like the era, but I usually don't remember one specific viewing. Um, I, I remember uh, interviewing Gary Willoughby, a super fan on the Blade Runner side, and he was talking about watching Alien in theaters the first time and uh, being one of these original late '70s crowds that were like 
shocked at the original chestburster scene and he said i remember in that interview he said uh he snapped his glasses he went to like cover his face or do something and like his glasses actually broke in the theater and he was like having a hard time watching the rest of the film and people were screaming and stuff it sounded so intense so i never had an experience (laughs) like that but i'm sure like other things that my dad usually uh exposed me to sci-fi when i was younger i was probably way too young to see the original alien and so i'm sure that scene i I probably even had my dad like covering my eyes the first time i saw that scene (laughs) like he used to do when i was a little younger for our movies um but yeah it just you know the that original atmosphere i think the original alien from 1979 is still my favorite in the series um and as much as i do love aliens and, and alien 3 um and so i've always kind of wanted to recapture that feeling of discovery and unknown and terror and darkness and just that perfect mix of feelings that a young Ridley Scott was able to um, really make happen on the screen. Um, And so I remember, yeah, I remember hearing about um, sort of Prometheus and I don't remember if they were advertising it as a trilogy initially. I think they were, but I was less plugged into this world than you guys were. Um, I just remember hearing like something, something alien prequel, you know, and I was like, Oh cool. Maybe this will be great. You know, I, I kind of tuned out to like a lot of the AVP stuff that had gone on in between. And I saw resurrection once and I was like, this is garbage. Like, so I wasn't that excited about any new alien uh, universe iterations. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, I saw Prometheus in theaters and I do remember probably the most distinct feeling that I had was going, fuck, I cannot believe I have to wait like three or four more years to see where this juggernaut ends up and where she ends up on this planet. And like, what more do we learn about the engineers? Like, I remember being very left with like a, almost like the film, had a to be continued dot 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 at the end you know like i had a very strong feeling of that and i was just like damn it um and you know i know we won't have time to get into covenant uh or if they do a third film on this episode but um i i still am left with a feeling of longing because i feel like covenant didn't answer those questions for me and didn't take me to see what i wanted to see um and so i i, I still have a empty or a incomplete like lingering feeling of oh man this story like where's it gonna go and like what are we gonna see um so there's definitely a lot of magic uh there and a lot of unanswered questions and you know some things that i'm disappointed about and some things that are really great um but overall um we'll get into this more but um i did overall have a positive experience with um, Prometheus when I first saw it. And this is my first time reading any of the scripts. So that this is an interesting foray into the sort of beginnings of that story. Cool, man. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on this show. Um, I'm going to try my best not to say Shoulder of Orion while we're in this episode because I'm so used to this exact view for right. our other podcast. But but part of why we wanted you on this particular episode is because for years now you've been you know talking about how much you love Prometheus, how you think it's this like underrated film, how you really I don't see think things he said in all it. that. Yeah, you let's say it's 
basically your favorite movie of all time. You have a, an engineer tattoo on both right. cheeks of your buttocks. It's, you know, it's actually the alligator clips are going into its ears. And it's doing so. So uh, when you bend over, it opens its mouth. That's disgusting. Um, no, but 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 you are definitely a Prometheus fan to to some degree. And um, and so for we've been talking offline about this for a very long time, right? About you know the, the classic division and prequel fans between Covenant and Prometheus, and like you know you and I have argued a little bit about that. Jamie and I have argued um, at infinitum about it. Um, but but you do have a lot of great points about Prometheus and a lot of great connections to it, as do many of our other listeners. And part of what I love about this series that we have going now is that we're getting a chance to connect with with other people who see things in Prometheus that um, you know we might struggle to see or that we might overlook sometimes. Um, so thank you for coming on and it's really exciting. Um, I yeah, want to go back for me. a moment to, so, th- you know, the, the origins of Prometheus are interesting because it was very much, you know, a sort of a wait, 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 okay, go situation, right? Which is different from some other, um, pre-production, uh, or development phases that alien films have gone through. This seemed to sort of happen very quickly, right? Spates wrote this, this 20 page, 23 page treatment. It was well-received. He just had this kind of idea for the script and, and Scott like loved it. Fox loved it. Scott wanted somebody else to direct it. Fox said no. Scott was like, okay, fine, I'll direct it. Write the script. Spates wrote the script really quickly. The script was very different from any other alien film to come before. Although, as Jamie mentioned, I think the, the biggest difference between Spates' script and Lindelof's script is how closely it hews to traditional story beats from alien films, right? Because space script is very different and very out there in a lot of ways, but it does have like a lot of the life cycle elements in it. It has a lot of like, wait a minute, this person's impregnated. Oh, there's another alien creature. There's a lot of like creature beats in it, right? Um, so then, so that happened pretty quickly. And then Lindelof got this thing hand, the legend goes, it was hand couriered to him. Um, and he, you know, received the script with no, explanation from anybody and the courier was waiting outside the the house or the apartment or wherever Lindelof was for him to finish it um and it, so so Lindelof was like I wonder why they're giving me this you know this story to to read um and he ended up asking Scott about it and they had a conversation and um and what seems to have happened is Scott said basically you know we want this to be more mysterious more sort of setting things up for more than just one or two prequel films but for this larger thing um, can you, you know, sprinkle some of your magic mystery dust onto it and help us make this into, um, you know, a film that does not feel like it has to be an alien film. Something that I was thinking as I was reading these two scripts um, side by side is, you know, the 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 whole like back and forth that we went through as a fandom leading up to the release of Prometheus is like, I'm sure there was some element of that in terms of whether or not this was really tied to alien. I'm sure some of that was like, because Fox was playing games with us a little bit and like teasing things here and there and letting things get out here and there. And we were kind of like, wait a minute, like this sounds less like an alien film now. Or like, you know, I haven't seen a xenomorph yet. What does this actually mean? But a part of it, I think also is because the film itself went through these early phases where they were wrestling with, is this an alien film or not? Right. Initially in space script, especially in engineers, you really get the sense that this is an alien film. It is setting up basically to this point where, although it doesn't end with this, it might as well end with, you know, the derelict being there with the, with the egg chamber open and, you know, with, with, you know, terraformers, you know, walking into it or something. It seems very, very much like it's setting up to kind of segue into the, into the films, or I guess with the Nostromo rather. Um, with, uh, with Lindelof's script though, it's very much a departure from that. And I think it's so fascinating seeing that the DNA of these movies was um, in flux a little bit internally within the actual creative teams making 
but also externally within fandom where we were trying to figure out what this actually was. Yeah, there was a lot of mystery. Um, I mean, I, we, we went over that a little bit in terms of like, what was it, how they were marketing it. Um, was this an alien film or was it not an alien film? Clearly it was. Um, or clearly there was elements of it. And I think Ridley Scott appropriately said there's DNA of the original alien in this. There was more than DNA. I mean, you had the ship, you had a lot of the iconography in the script. It was all there. It was just a little bit more reconfigured to be less obvious, even though it was obvious. one of the main differences I noticed in the retreatment later and into what made it into the film is that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a little bit since I read them, but Waylon doesn't make the same appearance in the third act of the script as he does in the actual Prometheus film. And that was interesting because I thought that was addition that was kind of cool of this sort of desperate old man that's looking for you know, extending his life and answers. And uh, I, I, some of that part of the whole sort of, you know, I think of uh, Michelangelo's painting of um, Adam and God, you know, God uh, pointing life or, you know, touching life into Adam. And, and I feel like that theme is really there, um, pretty strong, uh, both in the original script and in the final film. There's something cool that is new in this whole engineer's concept and in space script and in Prometheus that has to do with age old questions that mankind has been asking forever, which the alien series doesn't really touch upon, right? It's a, it's a, it's a different, it's, it's more focused, it's tighter, and it's more about the relationships between the people in these harrowing situations. And is like, you know, obviously like aliens plays a little bit more into action and um, alien is uh, more horror, but it's still about sort of working as a team and, and working through different personalities to overcome the adversity of this horrifying thing that is killing people, right? It's a, you know, it's a very horror movie kind of setup, although done in cool and original ways. Um, and they're adding a lot of big concepts in, in Prometheus and in Spates did this in the original script. Um, the Genesis um, sort of ancient chapter at the beginning of populating the earth, um, the conversation that ends up being in the Prometheus film between Wayland and the engineers and David and sort of like asking these big questions as if the engineers were actual gods and could answer these questions. I mean, again, these are things that if you go back thousands of years have been um, in, you know, that's, that's in the pulse of humanity. Ever since we started writing about things, we were asking questions about where do we come from? Where are we going? Who created us? Um, so there, there's some very lofty ideals and some very big, big ideas um, that anyone who's experienced any kind of culture can relate to in terms of religion and philosophy. Um, so, you know, while some of those things worked out better than others, um, I got to give the creative team a lot of credit for even trying to broach some of those subjects. Cause that's a, 
that's a lot for a science fiction movie uh, about chestbursters, you know, <laughs> that, that has some of these tropes or some of these original ideas that worked so well, but it's mixing, you know, and that might be one of the more difficult things they tried to do that maybe didn't work so well is mixing these really, really big questions with some of that action and sci-fi horror element. Uh, but I got to give them an A for effort in terms of trying to introduce some really big topics into, into the script. It's funny, just a quick thing. You mentioned Wayland in the Spade script. He is in it for like about four words and he's just kind of, basically this cattle farmer like he's like this warren buffett type remember he right. says yeah and uh-huh. i just, just have this image of wayland as being like yeah well we're going to the moon you know like <laughs> this like completely different <laughs> conception of him than what he actually ended up being in the film um but it's it's interesting that that's kind of like where he came from and in a way i think spates was on to something because a lot of the time the most powerful brilliant rich people are kind of unassuming you know like you wouldn't really expect that he could have engineered this you know and there's some something about the casualness that i think is kind of fascinating I also think, to Dan's point, Prometheus was really a, a changing of essentially the subject matter. I mean, it wasn't a, a movie about people experiencing terror, even though that was involved. This was a movie about large questions. Who are we and where Where did we come from and where are we going? Um, you know, there you can discuss the merits on how successful that is, but it did open up. It, it did something different than the original Alien films were doing. It was asking larger questions, and it decided to, let's not make this about so much about people as much, let's make this about questions and ideas. It's an ideas film, for sure. Patrick and I have discussed that. And I think, certainly, Spate's original script, it's all there. It's all in it. Um, and then Lindelof honed it a little bit better and got, uh, you know, like we were saying before, they he removed some ideas, but also... Um, flushed out some ideas as well and it's 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 a tough thing because it you know you don't you can again we can discuss the merits of how successful those questions are i I, i'll never forget after seeing the film and i've discussed this before i couldn't stop thinking about it for days it was just just in my head over and over and over looks like patrick's watching a movie um (laughs) i'm reading the scripts bitch i set up my big monitor so i can have both of the scripts side by side my research for this shit um but yeah um and i think that's probably in terms of the um, fans connecting to it it was a big leap like oh okay this is a, a larger this is a larger canvas than we're used to um, and because the questions were so big, the characters were a little bit more less in focus um, because the questions were more in focus. And I think in many ways it was successful uh, asking larger questions. Where, where are we and where, you know, who, who's responsible for human beings being on planet Earth? Um, again, I don't know how successful the answers were. Not that they were really presenting. They were sort of, we got... The question, but I don't think we ever got an answer. I don't even think even Covenant answered that question. So uh, I think it was bold. It was a bold vision to go with, and it was a risk to take. Yeah, they swung for the fences for sure. Yeah, they did. They uh, they aimed for the moon and landed amongst the stars. Right? Isn't that what the the expression is, or something like that? Anyway, um, something I want to do in a moment is I want to read the the beginnings of both scripts because I think that will kind of illuminate some of the differences of tone and texture and kind of how they differ from each other a little bit. Um, actually, you know what? I'll, I'll do I'll do that now. I'll just, I'm, I'm going to read, this is just the first chunk 
of the beginning of both scripts. Actually, before I do though, I do want to point something out. So you're mentioning the, the, you know, the whole disparity between characters and, and ideas, which is something that I know we've discussed quite a bit with Prometheus. Um, and I, you can see as early as the Spate script, which of course is where this whole thing starts, that the characters are, are very clearly secondary from the very beginning. Like this is, it starts with this like very kind of, you know, grandiose gesture of life being seated on this planet, right? And then it goes into just basically this dig that is then just all of a sudden they're like getting funded to go into outer space and then they're just like in outer space and they're like, they happen to be sexual with each other. And it's just sort of this like, you know, I guess they've just been scientists for a long time and now they're doing it because he's, she's his student or something. That's like the extent of background you get on these people. That being said, I don't feel like we need a ton of background on characters at all, right? But I kind, I, I guess part of my issue, and I'm not, I don't want to complain about Prometheus, part of my issue from a character's perspective is that I feel like the actors didn't do that work on their own. Like I felt like the characters kind of just were there to service the exposition that was actually the point of the movie a little bit. That being said, I want to start off and read the beginnings of the scripts because these are, this is my favorite part of the whole movie. And, um, and I think in some ways actually it is the worst part of the movie. And I'm going to explain why in a little bit. But before I do, without further ado, uh, this is the way that the Spate script starts. Fade in. Exterior, Earth, day, 12,000 BC. The world turns below us fast and slow. A rumble. A shadow sweeps over the land. We move with the shadow. We cast the shadow. Landscapes slide by, reduced by altitude to abstractions, river deltas, forests, and flood plains, a raw natural world, no trace of civilization. The shadow glides over mountains and glaciers, across an ocean and a pale beach, over lowland plain, at the foot of a volcanic mountain, it stops. Okay, so that's the way that the Spade script starts. The Lindelof script starts with, and I'm, I'm going to try not to like overdo it, but this is this is the way that it's actually, this is the, the in terms of bold words and, and underlined words and caps, this is like the way it's written. In the beginning, there was black. Exterior earth, day. Sounds. A gradual rumble. Something mechanical. An engine. And then suddenly brightness. So sudden it hurts our eyes, but now it gives way to water, intensely blue, untouched and pristine as the rays of the sun dance off its glass-like surface, clear, untouched, and we're soaring over it, the rumble deep and low, and now we see something moving over the clear water, a shadow, shaped like an enormous horseshoe, and whatever we are in right now, that is what's casting it, moving along the surface at increasing velocity as we finally hit exterior high above Savannah Plains Day, the Savannah Plains Day. So right there, you can see there's an enormous difference in tone, an enormous difference in tone, right? You have Spates, which is very kind of removed and very sort of um, almost Hellenic. It's sort of, it's like observing this from a distance and it's very kind of like slow and, and kind of allowing this to emerge. And then you have Lindelof, which I mean, literally almost, almost three quarters of the words are in caps of various types. Of course, there's reasons in scripts why things are put in caps because it's showing the focus of the shot. But I mean, there's things in here that are better beyond that, that are like, you know, highlighted that have underlines. He's really trying to hit you with a lot at the beginning and make it feel like a comic book, make it feel like it's this sort of larger than life experience. Um, 
Damon Lindelof is an extremely gifted dude and I am not taking anything away from him. He has contributed some of the best pieces of pop culture in the last 20 years. And, and it's because of things like this. It's because he can make us feel like anything is exciting. He can make us feel like there's mystery in anything, right? And that's what he's doing to the script, in my opinion. He's taking what Spates did, which was very kind of severe and very kind of upright and doing something and kind of making it into almost an action vehicle, making it into something that pops off the page. In, in The Furious Gods, uh, which again is Charles Lazarica's outstanding documentary about this film that everybody needs to watch if you haven't already seen it a million times, um, you can hear them talking about why Lindelof was hired. And one of the reasons is because he writes scripts like this. And people, people point this out. They say, you always know when you're reading a script that Damon Lindelof wrote, or screenplay rather, keep saying script. Um, it sounds like nobody else. It reads like nobody else. It's exciting. It's visceral. It's full of action. It's full of, of color. And it's, it, in my mind, a, a really strange match for Spate script, which of course is, is very kind of, you know, two-tone, very quiet. Um, but it's, it's an interesting choice and it shows right from the very beginning, just with that initial scene setting, just how different these two approaches were. Well, what's interesting about these approaches as well is if I think of Alien, Alien does not have a bombastic beginning or there's nothing really bombastic at all about Alien. This is a very quiet rumble. Script, uh, Spate's script feels similar to that. It's this slow sort of build, this slow rumble. Whereas if you've, obviously we've all seen Prometheus, it's boom, 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 this, that. Oh, we found something. Let's go. Let's go. The, the tone is very evident in there. Um, and I don't, you know, I think maybe there, obviously it was probably on purpose. Um, Ridley Scott was like, I've done this before. I've done the slow buildup. I've done the slow thing. Let's do it different. Let's get in there. Let's let's be uh, incendiary. Let's go beat, 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 and let's move it along. Um, whereas before, Alien wasn't like that. It was much more like, let's linger on this for like 40 seconds. Let's linger on this next shot. Let's, let's not know where the camera is. Whereas I feel like Lindelof's script it's all direction for camera. We see this. This is here. We don't know what this is. That is there. And it's just a, of course, it's a, it's a creative decision that he made, you know, um, for better or for worse, but it, it was an interesting one. And it's very subjective. I, I just want to point this out just super quick, Dan. Like the, the, the way, the, even the pronouns that Lindelof uses in that passage, he says, we, he says, it's us. Like, oh my God, like we're the ones casting the shadow. Like, and he says things in the script, like, look at how human they seem. Like, it's incredible. Like, it's, it's very much like he's talking to somebody in a pitching room almost. It's very exciting and very kinetic. Sorry, Dan, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I agree with what Jamie's saying about the beats later in the film. I will say in the opening scene, I feel like the final product, the actual film works off of space scripts a lot more than it does off Lindelof's. Meaning I don't feel this bold comic book, like hitting me over the head, like hard hitting fast, whatever. I do feel a very, like the way he's describing the earth and he's trying to describe this sort of pristine landscape and this ancient time devoid of humans. Like I think that the cinematography and the uh, uh, what do you call it? The, the scouting that they did to find, I'm assuming that's either Iceland or New Zealand, right? It's Where Iceland. They, yeah. Right. Like I think they did a great job scouting those locations and I'd, not for a second do I not believe that this is a time period, you know, 12,000 BC or whatever the, the time frame is set. Um, so I definitely 
like when I was reading this, the Spates introduction that Patrick just read, I, it, it felt right along with the film for me. Um, I didn't think, uh, yeah. So that's interesting. Cause it seems like they worked off of, uh, Lindelof's script more obviously for the film, but I thought that, um, I didn't feel rushed and it did feel like a nice slow entry into like, what exactly is this movie's going to be about? Because it, the, the introduction is so different from the rest of the film. Right. So I definitely did feel that sort of change. I think that's it though. I, different. I think the introduction is like Spate script. I think when it gets more bombastic and more comic book like is when after the whole seating of the earth is done, then you get into the, the cave that they're in and the plastic moves over and you see oh look look cut 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 move move it gets more it feels more like an episode of lost or or less um patient but i, I think that that was on purpose um because they we there's a lot to cover there's a lot of ground to cover this is not alien this is a different story um we're we're, we're they came at it in a completely different way um so i i to your point i agree i just think it it switches over to Lindelof's version after that initial, because the beginning is very calm and very um, soothing and interesting. And what are we seeing? What is this? I mean, I remember seeing it in the, in the theater um, in 2012 and just that opening. I remember thinking like, what is this movie? What's this going to be? And I thought it was very interesting. Um, but yeah, then they uh, either progress or digress into Lindelof's script. But what's interesting, though, is that even in Spate script, the, that the whole like first 30 minutes of the film goes just super fast still. It's not quite as like kind of like smack you over the head as Lindelof's version is. But they go from like the dig site to Wayland to being en route to waking up two years later within like four pages. It's like so, so, so quick. And I feel like we don't get much time to um, like understand the context for who these people are or how important the search is. To me, and again, I don't want to be complaining about Prometheus because that's not what we're here to do by any means tonight. But to me, part of the part of my issue with it, I think, comes from that sense of I don't have any time to like get to know what this means to these people other than what they tell us, right? So in Lindelof's script, um, there is there's some kind of uh, Joss Whedon language about what Shaw looks like, and then um, and then she basically introduces herself uh, just by giving all of her accolades to him so that, so that Wayland knows like, you know, how important she is. Right. Which to me feels like lazy screenwriting. Cause it's like saying right from the beginning, like, I'm just going to, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about me as a character. Like I'm going to set up an excuse to kind of tell you everything you need to know. So then we can just sort of move on from it. Um, and I, I feel like this would be a stronger film for me, at least if we'd had more time in the beginning to actually understand what the stakes were for them making discoveries like this, like finding, figuring out the coordinates for this distant, spot in the universe. Um, that being said, though, uh, I think that it's, uh, again, going back to the differences in the two, in the two scripts, um, one of the first things that I noticed, and I don't know if you guys saw this, was that in the Spade script, it's scarabs coming out in the beginning of that little box. Uh, and in the Lindelof script, it's blackness. And that, I think, points to something else. In the Spade script, in my mind, a lot of the time, there's uh, very little uh, left to the imagination in terms of what we're looking at right? Like he's very specific, even to the point of saying like molluscoids for the, you know, ovomorphs before they were ovomorphs, right? Like he has like labels for everything. 
when even the Fifield alien, you know, he talks about exactly what it looks like. He talks about what the, you know, the Holloway alien looks like. He talks yeah, about it's, how it's pale, but it's very vivid to read. Cause you're like, Oh wow. I'm like getting a very clear image of what these creatures are, which is kind of cool when you're reading. It's very descriptive. It is cool to read, which, and which is something I want to get to actually in a little bit. Um, but it's, it's also, I think a little bit kind of um, stultifying or at least over specific for, you know, they're not hiring John Spates to be the visual stylist behind this, right? They have Arthur Max, they have Ridley fucking Scott, like they have incredible production design capacity on this film. So in a screenplay like Spates where he's saying, you know, basically like the Holloway alien is white, but has kind of a human skull in it, but also an elongated head, kind of like a dolphin, but it's also bipedal and has some spikes, but it's a little bit gelatinous still. Like he goes into a lot of detail about these things. So to me, like when I'm reading that, I'm thinking like, I would rather not have that degree of specificity if I were the director or the production designer, right? What I respect about what Lindelof did is uh, he removed, for one thing, he removed a lot of creature stuff from it in general, but even the creature stuff that's in it, it's a little bit higher level and a little more kind of um, hard to, a little bit more inscrutable. And I think that that actually helps the filmmakers quite a bit. Yeah, well, one thing uh, that you texted us, which I, I thought was interesting, because that, that jumped out to me when I read the script before, I thought was funny. I don't know if it, I don't know what kind of funny it is, but it's funny. The way Shaw is described when she's dirty, sexily show, and I, so, and I think that's from Lindelof's script, right? Um, that's Lindelof's and, script, yeah. And I, I, w- I was like, come on, like, you don't, you're not going to describe a man like that. So why are you describing the woman like that? Uh, I, I, but. It, it's whatever. Um, but I think to the point of the characters, I, I don't think that um, backstory is ever important. We don't get backstory in any of the crew from Alien. We don't get backstory in, on any of the Marines and how they got there from Aliens. Why didn't we need it? Because they were so well performed. Um, and I think um, this this these characters are here to really, even the way that Spates writes them as opposed to because really if you look at uh, Lindelof's version of the script much of it is uh, note for note or it's word for word that he's moving over some things are tweaked here and there some additions here and there but it's the same dialogue their names are changed I think I preferred Shaw's other name what was it um Watts is it Watts yeah I liked Watts I just preferred that over Shaw um and of course she is the protagonist and she's sort of She's, they've revealed her as essentially a new version, our, our new female protagonist. I wouldn't say the new Ripley because she wasn't positioned like Ripley, unlike Daniels was. Um, but I, I think that the the language is, it's, it's just interesting how, how we get into the characters. I, I feel like with Spates and Lindelof scripts, these characters aren't here. We're not watching them to invest in them. We're watching them so they can tell us the larger story, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and, and, and that's what I was saying is that I, I don't want backstory. I don't want exposition. I don't want them to tell us their credentials or anything. What I want is the actors to do that work for us ahead of time in a way that really translates to the film so that when we're watching the characters, we're, we, we have a sense that like they have lives that exist before the events of the movie. With Prometheus, to me, that's just not really what I get. But again, we're not here to complain about it. Um, I think uh, that what I, I am continually impressed by over and over again is John Spates in general with this whole thing, because he came up with this idea kind of just on the spot, right? With Fox executives who had just hired him because they were interested in his work. They, they had, you know, approached him because they were interest, interested in his work. He kind of just came up with this idea 
they were like, well, that's kind of cool. He wrote a really detailed treatment of it. And they were like, wow, this is like a legit screenplay. Mr. I don't write, you know, I haven't written many screenplays before. Like what else can you do? Right. Um, and I'm, I'm just blown away and in, in going back and reading this whole thing and how original it is just in and out and everywhere you look, it is not what I would have ever in a million years expected a treatment for an alien film to look like in any, in any way. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm glad that he, I know his career kind of, um, plateaued a little bit after this, but it seems like he's getting back into it now with the Who's Dune Bates? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, he's he, been writing like he did Passengers. He's been on tons of tons of projects after this. Well, I looked at his, his his IMDb page. Actually, doesn't have any credits to it. It was well, like, check uh, the TV because he's been he's been a lot in TV as well or oh, okay. series. I okay. should say. Okay. Yeah, but for, in terms of movies, though, yeah, it's been one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. So so far, it's been five, and then there's two that are in various pre production or production stages. Anyway, my point being that like for somebody who's that clearly brilliant and that original and is like doing such interesting work, um, I, I'm surprised that his career didn't kind of blow up right after this. And I'm glad now with Dune and with other things that he's producing that he seems to be kind of hitting his stride because the quality of writing in this is just extraordinary. I think that the uh, amount of imagination is just amazing. And it's so easy for us to sit here now and look back on it because we know the movie so well. We know how it was received. We know how it fits into the extended mythology of the series. Like it's very easy for us to look back and nitpick things. It's very easy for me to sit here like some douchebag and whine about the characters. It's very easy for me to sit here and be like, well, I would have done it differently, right? And that's why people hate when we sound like that because it's really easy to complain, right? It's very different though to have truly original thoughts the way John Spates did. And sure, there were issues with many things in that script that I dislike, but the the overriding sense that I get reading it is how amazingly unique and interesting it is and how uh, Prometheus as a film is just a wildly ambitious and out there concept. And, and how I, I really respect that um, when it was handed over to Lindelof, who basically could have done anything and they would have signed off on it because he's such a blockbuster maker, um, that Lindelof actually, if anything, got it, I think, a little bit closer overall to the tone that Spates was going for, which is mystery, right? Which is taking this thing and making it weird. Um, and it's funny, it's, it's also easy to go back to Spates' script and, and think like, you know, well, you know, why does he rely on all these story beats that we know so well? Like, you know, it's, if they're going to a beacon basically and there's alien creatures popping out of people and blah, 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 blah. Um, but those things, those beats that are really familiar are put into contexts that are really different from anything that we have seen in the series so far. And I think that's kind of amazing. And I really respect that. I have always respected Prometheus for that, for being such a wildly different take on this franchise that uh, has a very hard time breaking certain cycles you know i mean it's very hard to break out of the established tropes that we get so used to with these movies and, and i really really respect both of these writers for taking it in wildly different directions and i think what is understated or underappreciated is the tone the lovecraftian tone of prometheus whether you know we talk about what's problematic or what we like or we don't like it's foreboding it it, much of it has that foreboding sense that you find in Alien. Now, is it tonally different in terms of the pace? Sure. But it has that, I don't know what's going to happen. This doesn't seem, it does. Alien doesn't have a hopeful tone to me. There's some moments towards the end when she gets free, whatever, and she's in the narcissist and she's trailing off. But most of the time it feels like any minute someone could die, someone does die, you don't know what's going to happen with Ripley. And I feel like with Prometheus, they strike that tone. It, it feels very, um, I don't want to use the term hopeless. I don't, um, it just, it 
feels unpredictable and uh, you don't know how it's going to end. And I think that's something Alien did perfectly well. And um, again, whether some things in the in the film um, work or not, I, I think, number one, they captured Ridley, uh, or Ridley Scott captured his vision of this world in a way he had only captured it since or with Alien before. Um, it was just beautiful. Everything was just the production design, the 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 everything that went to it. The, the design of the ship, the design of the the costumes and the the suits that they wear, and this and this big space suits, and then the the uh, whatever those vehicles are that go out and find. I mean, everything was just sumptuous and rich and dark tones. It was really, really beautiful. And it's reflected in both Spates and Lindelof's script. I'll just say Spates because I really feel like Spates is really responsible. Spates is the Dan O'Bannon here. This world is his. Lindelof essentially rewrote and tightened some things up. But this is Spates' story. Um, And I think he really was able to capture, in some ways, um, what we love about Alien. One of my one of the things that I um, also appreciate about what Lindelof did is he, uh, I think, made David a lot more interesting. David, as people who listen to the show know, is like one of my favorite additions to the Alien universe since the very beginning. I think he's just an incredible character. I love the way he's been portrayed in both films that he's been in. I think he's just amazing. In the Spade script, there's a much clearer sense of malevolence with him the entire time. Like from the very beginning, it kind of seems like he just fucking hates us and thinks we're a bunch of dumbass, slow, stupid people, right? And he even says that, like, like, like he says, like, you know, over and over again, you know, he, he complains that we can't do something, or he says, you know, like, oh, like it, it's almost like he's, you know, he doesn't want to look like us because we're we're stupid. That was one of the. F- few points of contentions that I had with Spate's specific dialogue writing is uh, there's a scene where I think David calls Watts stupid. Like he says, well, that's cause you're stupid. <laughs> and I was like, man, that's really on the nose. Like, I, like, I, right. I, I mean, I, I get where he's coming from and I definitely get that feeling of condescendence from David, which is understandable for the way the character is written. It's just like, that's a particular line that I was like, mm. Two, two on the nose, I wouldn't have written it that way. Again, like you said, it's easy to complain, but I'm, I'm mostly trying to say I liked the way uh, Spates wrote most of the dialogue. That was like one point of contention that popped out at me where I was like, wow, that's fucking really, that's that's really specific, you know? Whereas uh, the way Michael Fassbender ends up playing the character uh, off of the final script is, um, yeah, it's, it's almost like... Uh, he's above condescendence, right? He's like um, more, I mean, you said Hellenic and that's a good term, I think, because both the engineers kind of look like Greek gods almost. And um, David has this sort of born from Michelangelo's David. There's that comparison in the film. And so there's something very classical about him. Um, And I feel like the classical character that he is wouldn't stoop down to like call a human stupid, which they don't in the film. And I'm glad for that. But anyways, sorry to interrupt. No, no, not at all. And I, I want to talk about dialogue too, specifically, because I, I, I agree with you that the only character who I think is really specifically written worse than the Spade script is David. I, I really think that that character in the Spade script, which again, of course, it's easy for us because of hindsight, you know, I mean, he was writing like classic sort of enemy on board AI system without thinking necessarily about how to make it quite so different, right? And of course, in interviews, he talked about how, you know, and, and Lindelof touched on this too, in most sci-fi films like Blade Runner, right? 
there's an element of the, you know, the, the artificial intelligence or the replicant or the Android or whatever you're talking about sort of wants to be like us. So they want what we have, or they want to, you know, they want more life fucker. Right. But in, in Prometheus, the Android from the very beginning in space treatment, at least does not want that. The Android is looking down on us. He even says, and although this, I don't think this is in the space, this is only in Lindelof, you know, that like, doesn't everyone want their parents dead. Right. And Shaw's like, no, like I don't want my parents dead, right? Like he, he just <laughs> hates people, right? But what's interesting is that in the final film, I, I think because of Lindelof's treatment of him, uh, there's a lot more curiosity with David, a lot more of those quiet moments with the dream viewing and with looking at, you know, the Peter O'Toole and with kind of emulating his look and looking in the mirror and sort of seeing himself. That was such a great touch. I don't know who's responsible oh, for that, that particular thing, that. but that is just so great. Like it just- yeah, The whole opening, that's amazing. Right, I mean, right? they're they're imbuing well, Fassbender and <clears throat> the production design, all the other people involved. Again, I don't know who's responsible for those particular details, but they're imbuing um, David's character with so much backstory. I mean, to be honest, like you guys are sort of complaining about, or uh, you know, criticizing the lack of backstory to some of the characters that you know you can't connect with them as much, you don't feel for them as much. There's so much backstory to David even though he doesn't have a backstory, right? He doesn't have a history. He was created recently as an right. Android. Um, yet uh, it, there's that cool sort of uh, dichotomy or, or, you know, walking that fine line that Ridley Scott did so well in Blade Runner, to be honest, of um, who's really human here. Like who's more human and who's more robotic between Vickers, for example, and David, and who can you relate to more? And And that's just, it's a great touch, you know, and, and it was done in a, it's, it's hitting on some similar themes without doing it in the same way that we've seen before. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, those openings where uh, Fassbender's dying his hair and watching Lawrence of Arabia is just like, that's, it's brilliant. That's just, that's just beautiful. It is. Yeah. It really is. It's, it's brilliant. Amazing. Yeah. And, and so I, I do want to make sure we talk about dialogue. I want to, I want to remember to come back around to that. Um, I, I want to throw something out there that is bullshit. But I'm going to say it anyway, because I think if you look at the film through this lens, it's kind of interesting. So as many of us are, I'm watching Lovecraft Country right now and absolutely loving it uh, on HBO. Something that I love about Lovecraft Country, oh, Jamie hates it. He says it's, <laughs> no, I, oh, Jamie just, fucking. Yo, Jamie fucking hates it. I don't hate you don't it. like I it? Don't, no, I don't know what to think about it. I'm not. It's not you fucking scary. hate it. It's not scary. I just don't know what, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel. I well, we just know. got a heart react on Facebook, Jamie. So somebody's agreeing with me. About this. I'm not saying it's bad. I don't. I think it's incredibly produced. It's entertaining. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just I just kidding. don't know what to think about it. I don't know what the point is. Well, it's only been two episodes. My, anyway, my, my, my point being, what, what I really appreciate about it is that it's very clearly told from the perspective of the main three characters, right? Like every single white person in this movie is a threat. It's like just clearly, and, and that is the environment that they were traveling through. That that was what life was actually like for them is that any white person you didn't know was potentially capable of killing you and getting away with it basically, right? Um, especially when you're off the beaten path and you're traveling, you know, off the guidebook area. And and, and I, th I find that just really wonderful and refreshing and that there's no like white savior narrative and that there's no, it's just, it is very clearly told from the perspective of these three black characters. If you look at Prometheus and Covenant as a film told through the perspective of David, I think a similar thing starts happening and that that could explain 
if you were to look at it, it's a kind of a thought experiment. I'm not actually suggesting that this is the way the movies are written. If you look at it that way, then the characters being sort of, the human characters being so comparatively boring and poorly fleshed out and the events being really not about the humans, but about the larger questions of existence and creativity make a lot more sense. And indeed, part of why I love Covenant, and this is for real, is because I look at it as David's film. It's, 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 about, it's about him. Um, and I think that like, it's interesting. I don't know if that was intentional or not in the way it was written in any way, but it kind of feels almost like this movie was written through the perspective of, of this uh, particular artificially intelligent character. Um, anyway, just something to think about, just throwing it out there. I want to get back to dialogue. So uh, in the, in the Spade script, there is the Aaron Sorkin effect going on a little bit. Um, I, I don't mean verbosity. I don't mean like, you know, hyper eloquence or anything. What I mean is that every character sounds the same on the page, right? Like every single character's dialogue could be, could be interchanged with anybody else's dialogue, except maybe Yannick, um, because he kind of has this like salty sailor thing going and he's like playing an accordion and shit. And it's sort of like, you know, he's very clearly says a lot more curse words. And things they're like trying that. to be, they're trying to give him uniqueness. They fail. Right, they right. He sticks, yeah. he sticks out. But, but yeah. other than him, every single character is interchangeable, except oh, sure. maybe that Vickers is kind of malevolent a little bit, but like other than yeah. that, and that David is like this evil robot, right? Um, in the Lindelof script, the characters have a lot more interesting tonal differentiation. They read like real characters, not in a good way. Not, I'm not saying in a good way, but what I'm saying is that they read like different characters to me. An example of that is Holloway, okay? So in the Spade script, I buy Holloway's character 100%. I'm not like obsessed with the character, but he reads to me like a gifted scientist in his mid-40s who has toiled for years and is kind of like, you know, doing whatever it takes to, to, to find out if all of this stuff has any meaning to it, blah, blah, blah. I buy the Holloway that's in that script. The Holloway that's in the Lindelof script is the one where I am, I'm just like, what, who, who is like, who is this like X game scientist? And why is he, you know, he, he reads like he's totally out of time. And even to the point where in Lindelof script, he says things like dude and man all the time. Like, and, and it's just, it seems to me like there's a lack of seriousness. I can see Lindelof thinking, oh, it's cause like the most brilliant people are the ones who were kind of like off the, off the edge a little bit, or like they're a little different or they're a little bit counterintuitive or they're kind of the rebels. Like they're really the punks of the science community. Um, but I think that doesn't work. I, I think that that is uh, really, because for me, Holloway has always been like the most problematic character, honestly. And I think you can see how Lindelof's changing of his dialogue styles contributes to it. But it does not detract from other characters quite as much because they do start to sound different, especially Fifield. Like in the Holloway script, in the, not the Holloway script, in the Lindelof script, Fifield is like very funny. He's very salty. He's very cranky. In the Spade script, he's just sort of like, taciturn and doesn't care, you know? So I, I, there's a lot more humor in the Lindelof script and a lot more um, color to the dialogue for better or for worse. Yeah, interestingly, um, one of the things, and I, I respect the fact that you guys are trying to not complain about uh, this film the whole time or the script, um, but it, it's interesting to analyze uh, complaints that we know are popular that people have talked about, right. In a more constructive manner. So uh, one thing that I'm noticing is that the, this tone deafness that you're describing, um, I notice a lot in the five field and the other, the two characters that get lost in the pyramid, right. And they have to spend the night in there as they Moburn do in the actual film. Field. Thank you. Um, I believe in the film they were pointed out as being 
scientists, right? At least one of them was a biologist. One's a biologist, one's a geologist. Okay, right. So they're both scientists. I don't remember if the Spate script specifies that, but they both act very unscientist-like from the inception, from from the Spate script. Lindelof wasn't able to rescue that, and the film wasn't didn't make any effort to change that. And I know one of the big complaints that these two guys are running around acting like idiots, but more specifically, acting no different than the mercenaries that wake up with Vickers, right? In both, uh, probably both scripts and the film as well, meaning that they act like a bunch of meatheads and are just walking around touching stuff and be like, ooh, you know, <laughs> like not thinking critically about anything and then getting murdered, like very obviously. Um, so it's interesting that that's one thing that was not a disservice to Spate's script, meaning that it was like that from the beginning. No one seemed to correct it all the way through. And that's what ended up in the film, as opposed to these other characters that went through variations and dialogue went through variations and, you know, some, some got improved and, and some were worse, but uh, that's an interesting one where I was like, yeah, that's interesting that no one thought to make these two characters just a little bit more like scientists. And I think, well, number one, it's hard to write good good dialogue. It is. It's hard to write good characters. You have to really be a good writer to write good characters. You also have to, I think you also have to really believe what you're writing. I'm not saying Spates or Lindelof didn't believe truly in what they were doing. I, I won't go that far, but I don't know if they had the, the heart that Dan O'Bannon had when he wrote Alien, that James Cameron had when he wrote Aliens, or, or Vincent Ward when he wrote an iteration of Alien 3 that Geiler and Hill rewrote like there's there was commitment to the character of Ripley there was commitment to the the characters flushing her out and really flanking her and supporting her you just you felt you heard it in the way that they delivered the dialogue and you could see it in the way it was written it was just conviction I don't see that kind of conviction in either of these scripts however I also again to go back to writing character and dialogue is very very hard and I also know that when you want to give characters um, their own personality like you were saying Patrick they want to like make them a little bit hip or make a little make them a little bit emo or a little bit quirky or a little bit eccentric like because everyone's like that everyone has their own tics Um, but unfortunately typically that's not how scientists behave that's not how geologists behave. And so it, the wall, that, that suspension of disbelief just disappears. Uh, there's a film that came out within a couple of years of Prometheus called The Europa Report. The Europa Report. Um, and that was a bunch <laughs> of scientists. I think they were on Jupiter or Mars. I don't know. Um, and they were all in the ship studying what, well, they think that there's life on, I think it's, it is. It's Europa. It's not. Yeah. Europa the, is a moon, moon of. Yes. I can't remember which planet. It's a moon yeah. of Jupiter, Jupiter, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you watch it, I think the Europa, the Europa report. That's a tongue twister for me. Is very good. I think. It's, I just want you to keep trying to say that this entire episode. I want to come up with as many opportunities <laughs> to ask you about <laughs> that movie <laughs> as possible. Europa, Europa, Europa. Yeah, I really like that movie. Um, I mean, it was simple and, and had its issues, but I did. It was like simple, it. yeah, and I really enjoyed it too. And I thought the lot, whatever. My point is, the characters in that film 
are very well written. They're scientists, all of them. They're interacting with each other, and they're really trying to study the life on this planet or potential life on this planet. And I remember watching the movie thinking, man, this is what these characters in Prometheus could have been. They could have really been authentic, interesting. And I think about, um, and I'm one who I don't like the comparison game, and I think that there's, we're discussing like not being negative and not being, and I don't like to compare. And I think sometimes you can't, you can constructively criticize something without saying, oh, this sucks or this is shit, you know, and I I, I don't want to do that. But I do think that there was a, a lack of, believability in these characters and I think that comes from a lack of conviction on the page and uh, Patrick we've discussed this before I think even uh, Numi Rapace had difficulty finding who Shaw was in some ways and I think she finds her by the end and that's when I found Shaw was towards the end she just seemed more believable I was with her she had suffered a lot which made her just more real Um, but the when you're writing characters, um, again, I think the dialogue is, you know, to, to get realistic dialogue, how people talk. But also with Alien, you know, you had Ash talking about um, polystyre, or whatever words that he used, um, when he's talking about how the, the face hugger or whatever is inside Kane is keeping him alive. And it's very specific, it's very scientific, and it's fascinating. And you don't really get any of that in Prometheus. You don't get any of that jargon. You don't get any of that detail. And I think because of that, those characters suffer for it. And they seemed like idiots. They seemed like uh, dumbasses. And part of that is because their dialogue wasn't believable. Why are you laughing, Patrick? I'm just, I don't, I try not to complain about this. Yeah. I don't think that that's a complaint. Anymore. I really don't. No, I think that I know, that's, but... a, that's an objective. Like, I'm not going to, like, tiptoe around, like... The characters have... seem so stupid. I, I just It just drives me absolutely crazy. Yeah. The ideas are not. Because the ideas are not. The ideas the are not at all. The movie itself is very interesting. The yeah. characters are like a bunch of fucking idiots well, that, I mean, that's like... around. The characters act like... I'm, I'm not gonna get. I'm not gonna complain. I don't want to complain. I'm gonna complain on, for Patrick. like 15 seconds. No, this is gonna be a quick complaint. It's very quick. Yo, the characters Patrick act like, hey, the, the, characters act, the, character, the, the characters act like I acted when I was eight and I was pretending to be a scientist. Where I, where I would be like, this rock must be from an alien. Let me get on a spaceship and find out. It's just like there's just no scientific method shown. There's no data shown. There's yeah, no like, peer review shown. It's like these people are the only two scientists in the world, you know, and there's like nobody talking to them. And of course they're like, oh, well, we tried this and everyone said no. I'm like, show me why. Like, talk about that a little. Like, like what what was the world like? Like, was it weird that Shaw was Catholic or, or overtly religious? Was it weird that like, that this was, uh, you know, that like, were your theories out of line? Like, this is apparently a long line of work for these people. Like, you know, have they been pariahs this entire time? Were there other people searching for intelligent life? Were they the only fucking two people in the world finding cave paintings? Like, I don't understand. Ooh, that would have been an interesting angle uh, in terms of backstory and making the characters more believable would have been um, showing that Holloway and uh, now I can't remember if we're using Watts or Shaw, but Watts in the script um, have sort of been working on this line where they feel like every, what was it? 12,000 or 7,000 years, 11,000 years, 1100 years, I think 1100. Thank you. Um, That, you know, the engineers are coming and things are changing and they're, and they're seeing that in the, you know, in the fossil record, et cetera. Um, It would have been interesting 
had they been ostracized by their own community and had other scientists like shit all over them and had they continued to push this thing without being like crazy out there scientists just like no like i think we're right but no one believes us you know like um and to have it end up obviously the film showing them being right and being on this team that it ostensibly discovers the first alien life ever um that would have been a cool uh way to write that in a cool turn of events but um, even in the spade script just briefly, even in the space script, when they finally discover this and they actually get there and there's technology and there's signs of life, Holloway, the scientist who in the space script is not this X Games dude, in the, in this, in the space script who, where he is an erudite, you know, scientific person, says like, well, like, cheers, everybody. We just discovered the meaning of life and people will remember where we were on the day they heard the news. Let's drink to that. And then they like drink to it and then they go to sleep. I'm like, if, if I fucking had the culmination of 40 years of work and was in the and completely out in the middle of nowhere in space. And, and I found thousands of, of years of like human, you know, questions in yeah. history. Yeah. Like if this was what everything in our entire species was going towards, I wouldn't be like, cheers to that folks. It just, it just, it just feels like unrealistic to me. And I think it's what Jamie was saying, which is believing the characters or believing, believing what you're writing about as you're writing it. And I think part of this, not to complain about it, Part of this, I think, is that... <laughs> with I, all I, due I respect. With all due respect. Because so much of the movie is good. Part of it, I think, is that um, because this was greenlit so quickly based on the strength of that original treatment, that Spates was like, well, then I, I guess that's, then that happens. And they're like, okay, then that's going to happen too. And there we go. And, and because the ideas were so interesting, Lindelof was like, okay, we'll keep as much of this as we possibly can. And Scott was like, yeah, I don't care about characters really anyway. I'm, I'm here for the sci-fi and the ideas behind them, right? So, like, nobody at any point was like, does this make sense on a narrative level to have the characters reacting this way? Anyway, you, Dan, you were going to say something and I cut you off to complain. That was the last time I'm complaining on this entire series. I love Bullshit. bullshit. <laughs> I'm not complaining. <laughs> yeah, uh, just as a non sequitur, I mean, adding to Jamie's comments on your Oprah report and how characters are written um, and this is arguably barely sci-fi, but I, I always, and I need to go back and watch this cause I haven't seen the Martian in a while. And that's another Ridley Scott uh, directed production. But I remember that one of the things that stuck with me the most about that film is how believable and how well um, the characters of uh, Jessica Chastain, the mission captain and um, who plays the NASA director. I, I can see his face, but I'm, uh, blanking on his Ed dumb, Harris? dumb and dumber actor, not Jeff Daniels. Uh, Jeff, Daniels. Jeff Daniels. Yes. Thank you. Um, and I thought that the stresses and the drama and the responsibility and the weight of what those characters are going through was written superbly well. And I think their dialogue reflects that. And I remember thinking about that Jessica Chastain when she's like deciding whether to leave Matt Damon on Mars or not. And, you know, the whole crew and the mission and all that, like I felt, I really felt the weight of those decisions and I really love the way those characters were written. So, yeah, I mean, it, if anything, I think Prometheus in its final evolution and, and what we see on screen is a great example of how like something with just, again, I, I find it tragic, right? Because there's like so many great ideas and so many beautiful things about it. Um, that can get you sidetracked and can get you distracted due to some poor writing decisions, poor dialogue, and not enough good character development. Um, 
and if anything, it just goes to show, it takes us back to, you know, work, wa- working with Jamie, writing scripts for um, the audio dramas that we've produced and kind of like trying to edit that and work through it. And, you know, I haven't gone through it and tried to ri- write a script myself. I can only imagine how hard that all is. Um, but it just goes to show that really a lot of this goes back down to basics, right? Very, I can't personally think of any examples of films that are super successful without covering these basics of characters have to be well-written and characters have to be believable and you have to believe that they're real people with a background and with a history. Um, and I think it's, it's a shame that some of those things happen in the final iteration of Prometheus, because again, watching the furious gods and hearing Charles talk about it. And of course we know how much genius is still in Ridley Scott in his eighties, um, how much potential there is there. So, um, yeah, I, but I agree with you guys. I think last comment I'll make on this, and I wanted to read um, a very specific portion from Spate's original script, um, and it's the difference between what happens with Holloway in Spate's script, which is more alien-inspired, um, as opposed to what happened in Prometheus. I just wanted to read it because I think it's a really great sequence of events. But lastly, I, I, in terms of character, I think, again, the, the dichotomy is you have really high brow science fiction happening whereas who are we where are we from and the engineers are these beautiful gorgeous um david-esque elvis-esque looking creatures that are terrifying in my opinion and there's a lot to process but in the process of creating all of the world for prometheus the actual characters that inhabit that world were sidelined and i think when an audience can pick up on I'm smarter than these people. That's it's an issue, and I think it's an issue that will always tug back and forth with Prometheus, where it's you know where you love it and you're like, oh yeah, but I, I hear what you're saying here. So, um, but moving along, um, I wanted to read a portion of Spade script, which I thought was really interesting and um, intriguing. This is further along in the story. Uh, Watts and Holloway, Watts being Shaw, are now back in their bedroom, and I'll start here. Holloway tumbles. Watt, Holloway tumbles Watts onto the bed, pulls her shirt off. They struggle out of their clothes, clinging to one another. Holloway's ill, Ill at ease. Something's wrong inside him. He feels it. He dives into Watts as if for refuge. They make love. Sitting atop Holloway, Watts lays a hand on her on his chest. Your heart's beating so hard, she says. Holloway, that's your fault. Vulnerability in his voice, fear under the surface. He rolls on top of her, drives her into the mattress. She holds him protectively, not deceived by his bravado. Suddenly, Holloway tenses, muscles rigid, shuddering. Watts draws breath through her teeth with a hiss, eyes open. Her fingers rake his back. He screams, horribly, eyes bulging, tendons standing out of his throat. Watts jumps violently underneath him. Martin, Martin! He begins to convulse. She rolls him onto the bed beside her, trying to contain his spasms, his teeth grind. Watts. Martin. A horrible crack in the middle of Holloway's chest. Beneath the sternum, a grotesque head pushes its way out through the skin. A parasite. Blood fountains from the the ruinous wound. Holloway goes into a massive seizure, violently lashing out. Watts stares at the parasite, fighting its way out 
out of his body. It is white and boneless, glistening. It flails its hideous, lunging jaw. Watts screams and screams. The parasite frees itself from its savage womb and turns on Watts. She slaps at it blindly. It hisses at her. She squirms away across the floor. Tangled in the bloody sheet, the thing comes after her. I really liked that whole scenario that he wrote. It took place in the bedroom during a moment of intimacy. If you see the original um, uh, storyboards that were written, um, whatever's happening to him is almost like near his genitals. Like it's very disgusting and gross. And you see all of these tendons sort of flailing out of his body. And you don't know if they're his muscles, but eventually you can, the tendons, all of these like long, almost spider-like arms are from the actual parasite. It's fascinating and disgusting. And I thought, obviously they changed it, they moved it. Fifield did turn, but we don't really know what, what, I'm sorry, Holloway did turn, but we didn't know what he was turning into. He was just sick or something. But I really loved this treatment that Spates wrote initially. It was a different setting. It was very, you can't get more horrifying than post-coitus. And you know, right after you've done making love, then this thing just bursts out at you. It's, I thought it was great. I don't know what you guys thought of it. Yeah. I'd, I also really liked that scene. And I, I felt like also the space script kind of, um, I, I don't want to say uh, the wrong thing to say would be like stuck with sort of original ideas because again, I, I or stuck with older ideas from alien because I think it is original in the way that it describes things. Um, but it was a little bit less all over the place in terms of what um, the parasites and what the black goo that ends up being in the film kind of does to people, you know, like they, they sort of, I, I felt like one of, that was one of the issues of Prometheus is it, it became too broad and did too many different things where you're like, okay, I get that it affects DNA differently, but these are all humans, right? Like if there were different species that were being affected in different ways, which is an idea that goes back to Alien 3, right? When the dog gets a, gets a chest burst so it comes out of it and that alien is more dog-like, et cetera. Um, so that's one thing. But I felt like the film kind of got away from us in terms of from Fifield's transformation and Holloway's and the squid uh, coming out of her, you know, all these different things. It was just like a lot of different things going on and it was hard to figure out understanding the sort of morphology of this organism. Um, and the script has some of that, right? There's the like the hammerhead centipede. Um, there's this scene. Fifield doesn't have a chest burster and does go through a transformation similar to what ends up being in the film. But um, I think this script is a little bit tighter and exploratory and interesting but still mostly things that we're familiar with uh, in a good sense not in the sense that it's boring or retreaded but in the sense that we have an innate understanding of what's going on right um when you have a chest burster it doesn't matter what ends up coming out like you kind of and of course there's scenes earlier that describe holloway falling down a shaft and having his helmet removed and his memory being hazy about it but you know harkens all the way back to kane and what happened to him and the original derelict um so yeah i think that this original script did a better job of keeping things um interesting and original but somewhat in line with the morphology of this creature that we're familiar with so that it was easy to kind of grasp and understand. Uh, I thought it walked a really nice balance in terms of that, in terms of new creature design um, with familiar ideas without, again, retreading old tropes. 
which of course was part of why Lindelof was brought on board was to erase a lot of that, um, which I, I, th- I think in some ways does it a disservice. Like I appreciate that it's more mysterious in Prometheus, the way we ended up getting it. But I also feel like it's, uh, it, it is, I, I agree with what you're saying, Dan, it's, it's confusing. Like there's just so many different ways in which the goo is affecting people. There's like the hammerpede, there's all these different organisms, there's all these different things going on. Um, and it, it kind of just, it feels like it adds up. One of my complaints about Lindelof is, um, you know, that I feel like he- Wait, you said you weren't complaining anymore. <laughs> I'm not complaining about Prometheus. I'm complaining about, about Damon Lindelof. <laughs> that doesn't count. One of my complaints about him uh, is that he can sometimes be great at like making things very, very mysterious and then like get away with just sort of doing that over and over and over again to the point where it becomes kind of like a joke. You know, well, and, and I can't believe it hasn't come up yet, but just for anyone else who hadn't looked in Lindelof's background, which I just did recently, he wrote a bunch of Lost, right? I mean, that... Hey, he's like, he is Lost. Is, yeah, him and so J.J. That's why he was brought like, on. So that's, that's like their he, thing, yeah. I mean, that's the... Cla- yeah, him and J.J. Abrams. young writer that, that really Scott wanted to use because Lost was it at that point. Right, right. But I'm saying well, Lost is the quintessential example of too many que- like too many questions without answers right totally. like a lot of the sci-fi that we love to watch has more questions than answers right blade runner um and other films that we really love like get into these deeper questions and don't you know a lot of villeneuve's films they don't just hand everything to you on a platter and that's certainly important but there can't be such a thing as too many questions too confusing and not enough wrapping up of ideas and lost is sort of like the most extreme example of that i mean i was into that show for f- however many seasons it went for like almost to the last season, I actually stopped watching and didn't even finish the last season, even after having invested five or six years of my life into that show. Cause I was like, they're not wrapping this. They're not going to do it. It's just going to turn into a shit show. And you know, I've read about it and I know that it did. And like, that's the wrong side of asking too many questions in my opinion. So it's not surprising that that's kind of one of the flavors that Lindelof brings to this thing. And because it's the ways in which you ask questions, I think, right? Like part of why a film like Blade Runner or a film like The Original Alien gets away with asking a lot of unanswered questions, I think, or not not only gets away, but thrives on that, is because we're asking ourselves the questions as we're watching it. It's not the filmmaker being like, oh, do you think this happened? Like, why is there a polar bear on the island? Like, why is this goo making this guy a zombie for some reason? But like, this person's just got like something in his eyeball. And like, you, you know what I mean? Like it's, it feels a little bit sometimes like Damon Lindelof really enjoys just giving us a lot of curveballs and making us go like, oh man, because when you set up a lot of curveballs like that, you're, you feel like you're operating in a Christopher Nolan universe where there's going to be answers provided and all these weird mysteries are going to kind of make sense. But that's not, but he doesn't like to do that, which I think is better. A lot of the time, I like having a lot of questions that are unanswered, but I don't like to be manipulated. And, and sometimes I think Damon Lindelof can kind of manipulate us. And I think that's part of why this suffers. In the Spade script, Fifield, which to me, in the, his, his return in the actual finished movie is, is one of my least favorite parts of it because I think it's funny and it shouldn't be. In the Spade script, I think it's very frightening. It happens a lot later. His transformation is a lot more kind of uh, visceral and drawn out and gross. And you get, you get to see him like in the chamber undergoing these horrible painful things and like and 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 it's and it's very the body horror is brought out a lot more um and the way that the film was released that was re- that was rewritten basically to be kind of part of this action set piece you know early kind of set up this big you know action thing but also uh just it, he just becomes this kind of mindless like zombie creature 
Um, and even in the in the other version of it that's been released, it still it just doesn't play right to me. What I like about the Spates version is that the mysteries there are more interesting. Lindelof gives you this sort of mystery of like, well, what's going to happen? Is he going to come back and like, you know, something going to go wrong with him? Is he going to be violent or whatever? Um, but in the when you're watching like the pain that he's going through, the questions in the Spates script are more along the lines of what would it be like for that to happen to me? What would it be like to undergo horrible change? And you start thinking about things like cancer or things like disfigurement, things that, you know, make us question our own identity because of the amount of pain that they cause or things like right, that. It triggers your empathy a little bit, which right. I don't and think the film does at no, all. No, and the, the film cartoonizes that whole interaction and makes him into just this like stupid night of the living. Yeah, and it's character. like, why is he, why did he come all the way back to the ship for what? Right, reason? right. Right. Yeah. Like, is he mad at them for doing that to him? Like, it's like, that's and, not, and it's clearly not him anymore. So why would he be mad at them? Right. What's Whereas his, in the what, Spade script, though, he still is talking and things and he, and yeah. he still has some Which sense of terrifying. who he is. Oh, yeah. Right? That's he scary jumps, as fuck. He, 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 kills the, um, he kills the mercenary and then jumps on Vickers and in her face says, you, and then kills right. her. I was like, damn, that is like an awesome scene. Like, I wish they had kept that uh, yes. from the Spade script in the film. And also to, in terms of Jamie questioning, like, yeah, why did he go back to the ship? He doesn't go back to the ship in that script, right? This all happens no, in, in a mean, passageway yeah. in the pyramid, which made way right. more sense. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's interesting the things that they did to damage, or, uh, that to, you know, in trying to improve the original script that really damaged a lot of good ideas. Well, and I, I hate to use this term. I really do, but I'm going to. They dumbed it down. It was a, in some ways, it was a dumbing down of, it was a simplifying in his efforts to simplify things. What would have made sense if I feel metamorphosizing in the, in the pyramid, all of those things happening. They said, well, let's do that version light. Let's bring him back to the ship to do it. And there was no impetus for that. There was no reason for that. So it didn't it play out like, Oh, this is interesting. And then you have, of course, I think the guy that, that vehicle runs over five field um, and kills it. Um, the rover thing. And you never hear from those guys again. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I think the things that we're talking about here could be summed up in, in two different concepts. Uh, one for anybody. And I have in the past, like at middle school, I've tried to write stories. So like I've written a little bit of science fiction here and there. And one thing that I think is really common in science fiction is it's real and probably with any kind of story, but it's really easy to start a story right? It's really easy to throw some interesting things out there and ask those questions. Act three is way harder to pull off, right? How many of these questions do I answer? How many of these things do I wrap up? What do I leave mysterious? What's going to be the last thing that we see? Which characters do we spend time with at the end? Like all those questions are really difficult and it's really easy to ruin an entire story with the ending, right? So that's something that I think writers, especially science fiction writers, um, are, are just it's a classic question and they're going to struggle with. Right. Um, and then something that we talked about recently in terms of uh, Christopher Nolan, for example, um, and, and in Villeneuve, when we were talking about Denny Villeneuve and his style, if you're going to err on one side, it's way better to write things, assuming the audience on average is 
more intelligent than you think they are. Meaning it's much better to write something that's harder to figure out and people have to spend time on the internet or go read the original source novel or whatever it is. I see uh, the enemy uh, poster behind Patrick and that's a great example, right? Of something that like, you're never going to have all the answers and figure all that out because it wasn't designed to be that way. But it's like, hey, we're going to treat you like you're smart and you can go do your research and figure it out and come up with your own answers. Once you dumb things down to the point where even though it may not be your intent, it feels like you're treating the audience like they are stupid, that's a recipe for disaster. And I think that's some of what we see in the final development of these characters. And Jamie's talking about this dumbing down. And I think that's sort of a, a mortal sin of storytelling, especially in science fiction, is treating the audience like they're dumb because then you feel insulted and you feel like you've wasted your time, right? Totally. But um, I, I do think that it's important to remember that the story itself is not dumb. And that's something that I have felt since the very first time I saw it opening weekend 355 years ago. You know, I feel like the story itself is really interesting. The ideas are really interesting. And I think John Spates deserves an enormous amount of credit for coming up with this thing that is so original in such a short time frame that um, has so much in it worth unpacking and worth discussing and worth creating fan art about and worth thinking about things that made Jamie go home and think about it every day for weeks. Like he was saying, like, these are things that stick in our minds. There are things in Prometheus that very much stick with me. Um, and, and John Spates, this like, you know, young, relatively unproven screenwriter um, was given the keys to a kingdom and, and made something magisterial with it, magisterial and messy and interesting. And going back to something I bookmarked at the very beginning of this episode when um, Dan was talking about the way it was written, to me, I, I think Spate's script would make an, an incredible short story, like a Lovecraftian short story. I would, I would absolutely adore to read that. Um, I think that like the way it's written is very literary. Um, it's very interesting. It's very quiet. And I think that you know, we talk a lot about these, you know, uh, these new comics that are coming from Dark Horse. I'm sure that's going to change now because of the transition of publishing rights for the property. But, um, you know, I've been absolutely loving the Alien 3 Gibson script uh, comics. I'm currently adoring this original uh, O'Bannon script for the uh, first film comic series that we just did an episode on last time. Um, and I would love to see what this could look like as a novella. I would love to read like a literary treatment of John Spate's original concept for this or some sort of a graphic novelization of it or, or something like that. Cause I think there's a lot in here worth um, looking at on its own merits. David Lindelof to be fair, did things with this that were not just bad. I mean, I don't think that he made it uniformly worse. I mean, I think a lot of the iconic moments in Prometheus come from Damon Lindelof. Big things have small beginnings a lot of the the great quotes in the film are from that. A lot of the conversations about, um, you know, about David discussing his relationship with his creator. A lot of that is in Lindelof and it's not in Spates. Um, David become emerges in the Lindelof script as a real character. And John Spates did not make him a character. He made him a foil. And that is something that I think is really remarkable. And, and I think something that I'm really grateful Damon Lindelof did because he set the groundwork for Covenant, which is one of my favorite alien films because in that one, we get to see what it's like if David really does take center stage. Um, as we wrap, I want to um, read one more thing. Uh, I want to read the final lines of both scripts side by side because they, they show the differences in how the two movies end. But I also, I also think once again, they really show the difference in tone that these two um, fantastically different and interesting writers were going for. So I'm going to do that quickly. Um, the last page and a half of Spate's script 
um, says, so interior, uh, Vicar Suite Shipwreck Day. Watts, which again is um, uh, Shaw's character's name in uh, the Spate script. Watts strips off her spacesuit. She helps herself to a glass of vodka from the bar. A chessboard sits atop the grand piano, a game in progress. David, voiceover, filtered. I've decided. Rook takes Bishop. Watts nods, makes the move on the board, says nothing. David, voiceover, filtered. Have you decided on our arrangement? Watts, I'm not going to fix you, David. I don't need you. I'll hold out. A ship will come. David, voiceover, filtered. I'm certain, but who will send it, men or engineers? Watts falls silent. She stares unhappily at the chessboard. David, Dr. Watts, it's your move. Exterior, central crater, night. The massive central pyramid rises in the midst of the engineer complex. With a boom, a bright beam of light shines forth from its peak, punching straight up through the clouds like a laser. Various pyramids around LV-426. Other beams of light erupt from other pyramids, scorching the sky with their brightness. Exterior, LV-426, orbit. The barren moon hangs in space, its father planet an angry red god in the background. Two dozen beams of light rise from the moon, visible even from space, a beacon, a signal, a beginning, fade out, the end. So that's Spades, right? Which I fucking love. I love the way that ends. I think that's so interesting. Now here's Lindelof just for a very different view. Of course, if you've seen the movie, you know how it ends, but it's worth looking at how he wrote it because that a lot of the tone for those final moments comes from this, which is interesting. So basically Shaw's saying she wants to go find him, right? Um, she says, uh, I want to go where they came from. And then now the, it's, it's hard because Lindelof is a character in his own script. So I'm going to go ahead and, and call him a character. So if I say Lindelof, that's his notes to the performers because there's a lot of them. Okay, so Lindelof says, ah, and we can't help but admire Shaw. She's a searcher and she's not done searching quite yet. Shaw continued, can you do that, David? David, yes, I believe I can. Shaw, good. David, may I ask what you hope to achieve by going there? Shaw, they created us, and then they tried to kill us. They changed their minds. I deserve to know why. On David, and this is Lindelof, and for a rational being, this may be the first and only time we've ever seen him appear confused. David, but the answer is irrelevant. What does it matter why they changed their minds? Shaw, because it does. David, I'm sorry, but I don't understand. Hold on, Shaw, a beat. Then she grabs a handful of David's hair, lifts him, so their eye to eye calmly responds, Shaw, that's because you're a fucking robot. And with that, <laughs> Shaw drops her arm, listen to this, Shaw drops her arm to her side, carrying David's head like a goddamn pineapple as she strides off the damaged bridge of the juggernaut towards her destiny. And so we leave them, at least for now, because there's one last piece of unfinished business before all is said and done. And we cut to exterior planet crash site Vickers module day. Sand blows in the harsh light of day. We are outside Vickers module, now sand swept. Looks like it's been there for months as opposed to a single night. And as we drift in through the breach door, interior Vickers quarters crashed day, moving through the corridors, finally coming to the main room. The engineer lies on the ground still. Next to it, the troglobite, equally motionless, looking very much like a dead octopus. And then the engineer's body starts to twitch. His abdomen slowly rises. Something is moving, undulating beneath his skin like a massive python, pressing against it again and again and bursts out of the engineer's chest. A crystalline placental sac flops onto the ground with a sickening splash of viscous fluid. And now a razor sharp point punctures the sac from within, soaking the carpet with goop as it tears open and in magnificent glorious fashion, an oozing astonishing creature, a deacon slithers to the ground like a horrific tuna, fierce, terrifying. And it rises to its full terrifying height. 
takes its first steps towards the opening at the end of the room, exterior planet crash site figures module day, stands there now surveying the planet with the cold detached air of a hunter and it tilts back its neck towards the heavens, emits a sound, high-pitched nails on a chalkboard, an unholy scream that chills our goddamn bones as we smash to black. <laughs> very, I remember, very different. I remember all those nights when I was a little kid falling asleep and waking up in a cold sweat from nightmares of a horrific tuna coming after me. <laughs> horrific tuna! I'm like, of all the things in the world, this fat fish. Also, it's worth <laughs> pointing out the number. So this is, I'm not judging, I, you know. I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. So, so, I, so I, I can kind of complain because Damon Lindelof is, for one thing, a professional writer and also English is his first language, so he should know this. There's typos and shit all over that last page. And he had five months working on this thing. In five months, you don't think he like noticed the typos on that? I mean... He was paid anyway. for a job and he did it. He for was five invested. months, though, that's a long time to be looking at this thing, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I just there's just lack of... The big difference for me between Spates and Lindelof is Spates, there's a real sense of reverence. In fact, if anyone wants to go and watch the Furious Gods documentary, it's like three hours and 40 minutes, I shit you not. They interview Lind, uh, uh, John Spates, and he's really um, soft and accessible and humble. And Lindelof is not like that. Lindelof is far more edgy, far less accessible, far more arrogant I don't mean that in a bad way, but he just is. And that comes off in the script a little bit too, where he's a little bit more, yeah, let's go. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Whereas Spates is more like, I mean, that ending that you read from his Spates script is amazing. Talk about mystery. What the fuck is all that? That's and, it ends with, and it ends with a slow fade too. Even yeah. that simple direction, right? That, that Spates script ends with the beacons coming on and then the flight slowly going out as opposed to a scream and a smash cut, right? Mm -hmm. Smash mm -hmm. to black. I remember when I saw that film, uh, Prometheus for the second time and there was this couple sitting in front of me uh, I think it was with my brother because this was the second time I had seen Prometheus and they saw the creature come out and they were like is that an alien and I hear it I'm talking they're like is this an alien movie that was an alien and they're realizing it. I'm like oh that's pretty interesting that they didn't know this entire time because they were new I mean obviously they'd seen alien films they were familiar but this film didn't ring familiar to them for whatever reason um, but yeah I think that unfortunately Spates or Lindelhoff removed so much of that mystery and I don't think it was his decision this is just he did it he was hired to do a job he went off a bunch of notes that Ridley Scott gave him and he did it and it was served. and Again, Prometheus made $126 million domestic. It made $421 million worldwide, which was fairly hefty. I mean, it, it made its budget back and a little bit more. Um, it, it, but that's all, the all, challenge, right? You fight against that. When these types of treatments are that financially successful, yeah. it's a hard thing to argue It was against. financially successful, but... Fox also knew it wasn't as successful as they wanted it to be. So then the, the chatter for after Prometheus was, oh, people missed the aliens. There needed to be aliens in it. People didn't know, which wasn't true, but that that's we've had that conversation before. But I, I do think it's fascinating to see, compare and contrast these scripts and what it began with and what it ended with. Um, and yeah, I, I love reading about it. I love reading the process of that and seeing it on the page, um, how Lindelof perceived it as opposed to how John Spates um, conceived it. Um, that being said, we should probably wrap. 
Um, thank you guys for watching. A couple things that we want to cover. First off is we had a giveaway contest that we announced over the past year once we crossed 10,000 likes, and we did. And we asked a specific question. What was the name of the prison colony or prison unit on Fury 161? And Stephen Gray answered the question successfully. Within seconds of the question being seconds, asked, yes. like while the fucking broadcast was going on, he yes. already got the, and Jamie goes, don't look at the email yet. And I look at him, I'm like, this is already solved. Yeah. Unbelievably yeah. good. But my awesome, sixth sense Steve. about him. So uh, the answer was Iris. If you look at the, if you watch the assembly cut, which is the worst cut of Alien 3, you'll see the name Iris on the screen when um, Superintendent Andrews, is that his name? I think so. He's typing away, talking to William Dutani, and it says, it's prison unit Iris. So thank you, Stephen. A bunch of shit's coming your way. Um, we've been wanting to give this away for a long time. Thank you for that. Lastly, but not least, I want to talk about Patreon, and I'll move that to Patrick. Sure, and, and I just want to just chime in and say, he was not the only one to get it right. So totally. some of you who have sent us messages in the intervening weeks with that answer, you were also right. But We he, got four answers. Man, That's it. Four. Four. That's, That's it. A tough question. Five five total. One was wrong. The other four were right. Um, so yeah, that's yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So so we, we actually did get a number of right answers for this. So thank you for those of you who who did submit answers for this. Um and congratulations on many of you getting it right. Um I, I can personally say that I did not get it right. Um and a number of other alien experts out there also did not get it right. So you are not uh alone if you did not. But congrats. And um, yeah, as far as Patreon goes, uh, we are shifting back to our previous model of um, paid uh, content only. Um, you know, who knows, depending on how long this pandemic lasts, uh, if we're going to be moving back into some free content for people again. But for now, as a token of gratitude to our patrons who have stuck with us through thick and thin through these months, um, we are shifting back to making our content exclusively for patrons who are giving at the $2 and above level. So if you'd like to join, um, that group of people, you can do so at perfectorganism.com slash support. Um, you can search for us on Patreon. You can go to bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support. We are um, producing at, at the bare minimum two episodes per month that are going to be exclusively on Patreon. There are other shows as well. We do occasionally do shit shows. We have another one that we're going to be recording soon coming out. Um, as well as other things on soundtracks and things like that that we're discussing doing. So there's quite a lot of content out there that's exclusive for Patreon. Um, we are also in the process of revamping some of our perks. So if you have proposals for that, if you want to like submit some ideas for perks that you would like to see as listeners and fans of the show, um, please let us know. You know, give us a shout out on Facebook or Instagram or uh, send us an email at perfectorganismpodcast.gmail.com and, uh, and we'll see if we can integrate that into our Patreon stuff. But um, I think with that, I think we're all done. Unless Dan, do you have anything you want to add as we as we wrap? No, just want to thank you guys for inviting me on the show. It's uh, yes, thank fun you for to be on. on. Yeah, it's fun to be on PO again. It was cool talking about Prometheus and these scripts. Um, yeah, hi to everyone that listens to Perfect Doors on, on the regular, and thanks again to our patrons who support us. Um, with this month, it'll be out by the time this episode's out, but this month was Prisoners and Lady Hawk were the two films that we talked about. So we're doing at least two films a month. And uh, yeah, thanks for supporting us. We really enjoy uh, talking about those films and putting out that content for you guys. So thanks, thanks for joining us, everyone. And we'll talk to you again soon.
For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.